Good evening, everyone. You're all very welcome. Uh, it's really a wonderful evening and delighted to see you all here. Uh, it's really a great personal privilege um, to welcome Dr. Robinson here this evening to the School of Law and to the Irish Centre for Human Rights at NUI Galway. Um, as with many of you here, um, I've always been a great admirer and been lucky enough to have been inspired over many years by her activism and advocacy on behalf of Monona Heron, but uh, of course, all of us here locally and globally. So we couldn't have brought uh, a better uh, advocate uh, to speak to you tonight on the topic, um, the necessity of advocacy and the continuing necessity of advocacy. Um, Dr. Robinson, Judge O'Connor, uh, Judge McDonald, uh, colleagues from the judiciary, friends, students, uh, we're delighted to welcome you here this evening. Um, this uh, event is organised at a time uh, when populism appears to herald uh, what has been talked about as a politics uh, of dark times across Europe and, of course, globally. Um, and it is timely, therefore, in Ireland uh, to reflect on how political, political activism and advocacy uh, can also bring us constitutional transformations and human rights movements that are rooted in respect for autonomy, dignity and equality. Um, this year, of course, marks not only the 70th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, um, but also the 50th anniversary of the Civil Rights Movement. And our own late uh, Professor Kevin Boyle, of course, uh, was a leader in the civil rights movement and I'm sure would have been troubled by some of the developments today around Brexit uh, and around the, the legacy and troubled legacy of the Good Friday Agreement at the moment. Uh, against that background, however, in the last 12 months alone, uh, we have witnessed significant constitutional change here in Ireland, uh, landmark court judgments on the right to work for asylum seekers, rights to family unity for migrant families, and a constitutional recognition of the right to an environment that is consistent with human dignity and well-being as an essential condition for the fulfillment of all human rights. Uh, these changes are brought about by all of us by engaging in processes of legal and political change and transformation that are often risky and unpredictable, uh, and at times bring with them significant personal cost to those most affected. We are reminded through these changes, however, of uh, a politics of the possible, what can be achieved. Uh, writing of his time in Auschwitz, Primo Levi, who I'm, I'm sure you all know, spoke of his memory crowded with the faceless presences of emaciated men on whose faces and in whose eyes not a trace of a thought was to be seen. As we reflect on the troubled claims to universality of human rights today, we need to move beyond an indifference to what sometimes becomes faceless presences. Deaths in the Mediterranean, the killing of children and widespread famine in Yemen, the brutal separation of migrant families here in Ireland and elsewhere, and everyday homelessness here in Galway persist despite the noble aspirations and language of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. This evening, we're also marking the launch of two new programs, our Masters in International Refugee and Migration Law and Policy, and a Bachelor of Law in Human Rights. 
both firsts in Irish legal education. And we hope that through these initiatives, the School of Law and the Irish Centre for Human Rights will continue to contribute to educating new generations of human rights lawyers and advocates. Our chair for this evening is Judge Tony O'Connor of the High Court. I would particularly like to thank Judge O'Connor for proposing this event, uh, for his commitment to encouraging lawyers and law students to engage with the law, to move beyond uh, what Hannah Arendt referred to as a preoccupation with law and politics as being about ruling and the ruled, and to consider instead the possibilities of a vie active, an active life, a commitment to the ideal of the rule of law as essentially intertwined with human rights, activism and advocacy. Thank you very much, and I'm going to hand you over now to Judge O'Connor. Thank you. Um, it's a great privilege for me to uh, be here and to chair um, with uh, so many distinguished speakers. Privileges um, bring obligations, and my obligation is not to waste your time, and I'm not going to waste your time. You have uh, various bio biographies uh, given to you in the acceptance for, the, um, for this lecture, um, and I'm not going to repeat them. Um, I'm sure that... Um, uh, you recognise the abilities of, of, of all of our speakers. Um, I'm going to introduce to you and just show you the format first. Dr. Uh, Robinson is going to speak for 20 minutes and each of the other uh, speakers are going to speak for 5 to 10 minutes and then we'll have a panel discussion um, with questions posed by yourselves uh, in relation to it. Um, Siobhan mentioned uh, that I had something to do with this. All of the organisation has to be attributed to NUIG, who I commend uh, uh, very much for organising this event. One thought that before you uh, start listening to these distinguished speakers is just think about somebody who you um, might you might regard as a great advocate. Um, part of my uh, interest in this particular event came from my cycling uh, around uh, Strayed and going into the Michael Davitt Museum. And Michael Davitt was a um, remarkable person. But just think about somebody in your life, in your history, that you can identify um, and see what um, you learn from tonight um, as to whether you can be an advocate. Not everybody uh, wants to be an advocate, but there are roles of being an advocate, not only by words, but also by deed. Without further ado, I'll hand over to Dr. Robinson. Thank you. Thank you very much for a very warm welcome. It's great to be back here in NUI Galway and to have the opportunity to take part in this very interesting evening on the necessity of advocacy. Uh, I was aware at quite a young age of the necessity to be able to advocate, to be able to speak with some uh, wisdom or some uh, eloquence or even some enthusiasm about things, but I had a problem. Um, I had a big problem when I was at secondary school in Dublin, and that was that when I got up to speak, I was very shy, very shy, and I would blank. I would just lose it completely. So I tried to do debating in school, and then when I went to University to Trinity, um, I decided to take part actively in debates, just to get myself 
force myself to be able to uh, continue to speak and follow the thread and not go blank. That was my big um, wish at the beginning, and I'm serious about this. I really remember how terrible it was to go completely blank in front of an audience and you know, not know what the next, what, what was it I wanted to say, and uh, just the shyness coming out. So um, I took part in quite a lot of debates, um, not just in Trinity, but also I was studying in the King's Inns to become a barrister, and there were good competitive debates in the King's Inns. My um, companion in those debates was Harry Whelehan, and we won at least one of those debates, I remember. We, we celebrated um, a, a big win for the, for the King's Inns. And then I was elected auditor of the Law Society, and I think my first real advocacy was the speech that I made in 1967 as auditor of the Law Society in Trinity. Um, I decided to speak on law and morality in Ireland. That was to be the title of the speech. And I remember consulting and getting good speakers to come, but I also went to uh, University College Dublin at the time to speak to Professor John F. Kelly. Um, I'm sure many of you are studying Kelly's constitution. And um, I had an interesting meeting with him because he said, um, I wouldn't really do that, Mary. There's no law in that. And I kind of felt, you know, I, I think there is some law in this. You know? And so I, I, I was a bit shaken coming out of the room, but I decided, well, I, I, I think I'm going to do this. And actually, um, I was very lucky because I was able to get HLA Hart over from Oxford. Kingsman Moore took part. And I'm trying to think, and I couldn't think on the way here um, uh, this, this evening. There was um, quite a conservative um, Catholic lawyer also, but for some reason I can't remember his name. But anyway, he also, <laughs> he also took part. And um, what I was saying in that uh, uh, speech as um, auditor was that we needed to open up Irish society and we needed to remove the ban on divorce in the Constitution. We needed to legalize family planning. We needed to remove the um, criminality of suicide. We needed to um, also remove the criminality of um, uh, consenting male adults in private. I'd been reading the Wolfenden Report, which was much discussed at that time. And, um, uh, it, it, it was, uh, these were issues that I felt quite you know, strongly about. And after I graduated from Trinity, I was lucky enough to go to the Harvard Law School straight away. And I'm the class of 1968. So yes, I'm old. I'm the class of 1968. But that year, 1967 to 68, was an extraordinary year to be in the Harvard Law School because many of my American contemporaries were very critical of what they called an immoral war, the war in Vietnam. And they were seeking to avoid the draft, which was a big problem for many of them. And, uh, and quite a number of them were very interested in the civil rights movement in the south of the country, uh, in poverty programs for um, particularly southern states. And that was what they were going to do when they graduated. And uh, more than anything else, uh, I kind of, I saw a different world for young people, frankly, than the world I had left in Ireland. In Ireland at that time, you waited your turn and you got into your 30s and then you waited and you got into your 40s. And maybe in your mid-40s, yes, then you could do things, you could take part. But these young people were taking their decisions, they were taking responsibility. And that had a big effect on me. Um, I have to say that uh, afterwards, um, when I came back to Ireland, um, uh, I, I um, started studying law and practicing law, and 
uh, we had a, an election in 1969, and uh, I you know, found out that the university seats in the election, the three seats for Trinity and the three seats for the National University of Ireland, were by and large filled by uh, elderly male professors. So I questioned this, and you know, the, the point was made, well, you know, if you really want to stand, why don't you go forward and, and we'll support you? Um, my husband-to-be the following year in 1970, sitting here in the front row, Nick, um, called it my Harvard humility that had me standing at that time for the Senate. But somehow it worked, and I got elected at that time. And of course, that opened up an advocacy. And the first issue that I tackled was part of what I talked about as the auditor of the Law Society to um, change the law in relation to family planning um, and to amend the criminal law um, uh, Amendment Act of 1935. It was quite a simple bill. I had two uh, colleagues uh, supporting it, uh, John Horgan and Trevor West, and uh, I completely underestimated the uh, reaction, the hate mail, the being denounced in newspapers, being denounced from pulpits, and the Archbishop of Dublin, um, uh, Archbishop McQuaid, requiring a letter to be read out in every diocese in Dublin that this measure, the bill that we were putting forward, would be and would remain a curse upon the country. It was heavy stuff. Um, and um, I actually remember be, being quite affected by it. And um, Nick decided that this is after we were married. The bill was submitted in early 1971. Um, he uh, burned a lot of those letters. And we both, I think, regret it now because you know, we're archivists. We like to have the <laughs> material. And um, uh, that material was, was just destroyed. So um, I had opportunities um, as a lawyer, as a teacher, as a senator to practice my advocacy. And at this stage, I could hold my speech. I, I wasn't nervous speaking. I could, uh, you know, I, I had, um, in fact, the teaching helps the advocacy as well. Because when you're teaching for the best part of an hour, then, you know, you learn to keep going and you don't uh, go blank. Um, and then my life changed when I um, was elected president in December 1990. And um, I remember realizing that the inaugural speech that I made was going to be literally how I was going to try and be the, uh, the president that I had tried to campaign to be. And therefore, I spent quite a lot of time um, with help from friends, particularly from Nick with his red pencil, um, to you know, express what I wanted to do. And I just want to quote one thing that I said in my inauguration. I said, that I was, <clears throat> I said looking outwards from Ireland, I would like, on your behalf, to contribute to the international protection and promotion of human rights. And the truth is, I hadn't the fuckiest idea how or what or in what way, if ever, it would be possible to do this. But I said it anyway, you know. <laughs> and then things happened. Um, I was asked in 1992 by the aid workers who were desperate about the famine in Somalia and the fact that there was fighting among the warlords and would I possibly go to Somalia. And I knew that I couldn't go, obviously, as president without the permission of the government. And we, we kind of contrived things, I have to admit. Um, we arranged that um, there would be a meeting of the, those involved in uh, concern and goal and um, uh, trokra, etc., um, who were working in Somalia to come to Arasanukthron and that RTE would be there and that I would be asked on live television. 
would you come to? And I would say, yes, on live television, as long as the government will let me. That's what, and that, the government did let me. And that was a very, um, a very harrowing experience, uh, um, really harrowing to see um, lines of women and men with small children and not so small children in their arms um, literally starving. In fact, some children died in the arms of their parents before they could get to the feeding station. And I remember uh, speaking as president from Nairobi at the end of the visit. And I'd been fine during the visit. I'd, we'd we'd um, been there for about four or five days. I'd seen everything, gone to everywhere, and gone into a live theater where um, legs and arms were being amputated off people um, who'd been um, uh, shot or uh, in, the, in the conflict. And uh, I was fine, but when I wanted to speak to the press, I actually found that my voice started to waver. I was clearly emotional, and I was furious at myself, absolutely furious, because I was the lawyer. I was supposed to be able to be detached, and here I was at my voice breaking, talking about the world needs to understand, and the world needs to do more, etc. And I went up to my room afterwards, and Nick came up with me, and I think we both felt, um, you know, well you know, you, you, you didn't do that very well. You're like, and, and then I actually saw it played on the television in the room that I was in, and I could see that it had huge impact because I had shown my emotion. And it was, it was really very interesting. Um, it was, you know, a lesson um, that I, I learned uh, that, you know, I, I wasn't, I, I don't like when people, you know, sort of uh, sob to, for the sake of, you know, getting sympathy and support or whatever. No, but um, this was an example. There's another example which um, I'm not so fond of, um, of um, addressing both houses of the Oireachtas. I did that twice. Um, it's something a president can do. And the second time, I did it to talk about the Irish um, who had gone abroad over centuries and over recent times that we really didn't care enough about. And as a, as a senator, I had spent some time with um, the Irish immigrant centers in the UK, in um, um, Canada, in, in the United States, and even in Australia. I'd been to Australia as a senator. And, you know, I was very proud of these centers, particularly because they also reached out to non-Irish. They were very inclusive and they were very good with their values, etc. And I wanted to talk about you know, the, the Irish diaspora, having been president for several years, um, I was very aware that we were one family and that this was the, you know, the wider Irish family. And I wanted to use a word which wasn't very common in those days, um, the Irish diaspora. Um, I got some negative reaction to that um, initially. And I actually asked my father, I said, well, what do you think about, you know, calling the title the Irish diaspora. He said, yes, go ahead. The Irish love new words. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll like it. And it, it did become. But I made my speech in the, um, uh, you know, uh, to the two houses of the Oireachtas. And I was so kind of caught up with how much I wanted to make that speech and really make a really good speech, etc., that it was terribly preachy. And I, you know... Um, I, I, I'm sometimes I, I've watched it and I say to myself, I would never do that now. I would never give a speech like that. It actually was very badly received. You know, the members of the Eruptus did not like being preached to by the president, I'm telling you. Not one bit. And there was no humor, there was no self-deprecation, there was no I was so on message with my message. I think um, luckily my message got out around the world. 
Um, John Ke um, Ted Kennedy put it on the uh, Library of Congress. I got letters. There were no emails in those days, practically. I got letters from various people around the world. The one that affected me most, I think, was a nun, an Irish nun in China. And she said, I have heard your message. I don't think there's an Irish person within a thousand miles of me, but I'm, you know, I'm so happy, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it, was, it was a lovely letter. And um, so the immediate audience felt preached at, but a wider audience got the message, and I, I was sort of pleased about that. I then became High Commissioner for Human Rights of the United Nations, giving leadership on human rights, gender, rights of people with disabilities, um, rights of indigenous peoples, and I had no big stick. So advocacy was so vital, and the advocacy was very often going to the worst places of human rights abuses and listening, and the power of listening, I learned, you know, just not having any possibility of changing people's lives, but giving them that sense of respect that they were being listened to, and then coming back and helping to get their voice out. That was the important thing, that as High Commissioner, I had the opportunity to speak directly of what I'd seen, what I'd heard, um, and to hold governments to account, to ask the UN to do far more, etc. And, um, you know, after the United Nations, I, 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 well, first of all, I've often admitted, because I'm now very focused on climate justice, that in my time as High Commissioner, those five years, I didn't make a single speech on climate, because I was in a way in a silo. It was a big silo, human rights, gender, rights of people with disabilities, indigenous, etc. But there was another part of the UN dealing with climate change, and I didn't make the connection. It was when I was working in Africa um, on economic and social rights, rights to food and health, and women, peace, and security issues, and corporate responsibility, that everywhere I went, I heard the same sentence, more or less, that things are so much worse. And it was because everything had become so unpredictable, so impossible. Um, we don't know when to sow. We don't know when, when to, to harvest. Um, it, it affected food security. It affected very poor livelihoods. Pe women had to go further for water, had to go further for firewood, and so on. And um, I gradually... Uh, understood the link that climate change is undermining human rights, that it's a key issue of human rights. It's probably the biggest issue of human rights of this century now because we're facing an existential threat, as we know from that recent report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And I founded my foundation here in Ireland, in Dublin, the Mary Robinson Foundation Climate Justice. And then, believe it or not, I learned that I couldn't do advocacy for my foundation on human rights and gender, because a charity cannot do advocacy on human rights and gender under Irish law. Think about that. Strange, but it's true. So I don't do advocacy. I do persuasion. I do... <laughs> I promote understanding. I sometimes get very bossy. But whatever it takes. Um, but that is an interesting thing about um, charities. But I do want to end with um, a kind of sense, since this is the uh, School of Law and the Centre for Human Rights, um, the Irish Centre for Human Rights that I've always been very admiring of, and I'm delighted that you have a, a great director um, of the centre again. Um, but uh, I, I believe now that law schools and centres for human rights have to center the agenda for our world as part of their advocacy going forward.
And the, the agenda for our world is the 2030 agenda with its 17 sustainable development goals and the Paris Climate Agreement. Agreed, negotiated in the case of the 2030 agenda by 193 countries, and they agreed it. In the case of the Paris Climate Agreement, 195 countries, and they agreed it in 2015. It's still the agenda for the world. We're in a bumpy time. We've populism, we've President Trump, we've all that. But the truth is, that is the agenda for our world. And we now know far more about what the goal of the Paris Climate Agreement really means. The goal is that we stay well below two degrees of warming above pre-industrial standards, meaning uh, middle of the 19th century when major manufacturing, etc., started. Um, so we stay um, below two degrees of warming above that, and we try to stay at one point, work for 1.5 degrees. And it was the small island states, it was the least developed countries that argued for the 1.5. I heard that mantra um, over and over again coming up to Paris, 1.5 to stay alive, 1.5 to stay alive, because these small islands knew they would go under if they didn't get the 1.5. I thought when we got it, and I was very pleased we got it into the text, that this was for the small islands and the poorest countries that were most dis disrupted and buffeted by climate change. Now this report, the other day, of the scientists around the world, the, the inter Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, have told us, no, this is the standard for all of us. We have to stay at 1.5 degrees and not go above it. Or if we go above it, somehow come down again and stay at it as being the only safe world. And the difference between 1.5 and 2 degrees is really, really serious. It's the time between 1.5 and 2 degrees when we lose the coral reefs, when the, we lose the ice of the Arctic, when we get the permafrost starts to melt, and then we get into the loopbacks, or whatever they call them, where Mother Earth, the Earth, which is very good to us at the moment in absorbing so much carbon, it absorbs it in the water, in the oceans, it absorbs it in forests, but it could turn around and not absorb and um, you know, change very dramatically and get us into a worse and worse situation. So at the moment, we're on course for a three-degree world. The scientists have told us we need to reduce our emissions by 45% over the next 12 years. Actually, it's less than 12 years, because it's 2030. Reduce by 45% and then go to zero carbon, zero fossil fuels by 2050. And this has huge implications for every discipline, but it has massive implications for human rights, for gender, for just transition, for um, law schools around the world, lawyers around the world, all of you in your future, this should be something that you take extremely seriously. And that's the end of my advocacy. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Robinson. Um, and uh, I just felt the personal and the human touch, uh, but intertwined in all of that, there are strands of what advocacy is about, um, not just the um, persuasion. Um, Judge Dennis MacDonald mentioned to me, he was lectured by um, uh, Dr. Robinson, and he said to me, um, you know, she was in, in so many cases, um, she's so modest, um, that she didn't touch upon her legal career. I thought I knew of some of the cases that she was in. And um, sometime when you uh, have um, time on your hands, go into justice or one of the, uh, and put in 
Mary Robinson in, in inverted commas into the search and you will um, find out the cases that she was in and I, what struck me was how she can remain dispassionate, she's passionate about climate change now but how she dealt with cases and so many of the cases I don't think I've ever come across somebody who has been defeated in the High Court and gone to the Supreme Court and got the Supreme Court persuaded to uh, change the law. Just one or two examples of it. O'Brien and Bordenamona, close to my heart, all about bogs. Um, uh, fair procedures when you're compulsorily acquiring it. Um, uh, EK and the nursing board, where um, the nurses who were disciplined had a right of appeal to the um, High Court. Um, most significantly, and, and this allows me to uh, introduce our next speaker, uh, Webb in Ireland, 1988 uh, Irish reports, um, all about finding tr um, treasure and who um, is entitled um, to be paid for it. And sh she was uh, led there by um, Jerry Liston, who I'm going to, uh, his grandfather, or, uh, and in, in that particular case. But that dealt with so many issues. De Burke and uh, the Attorney General, the composition of juries and the selection of bias of, um, based on property qualification. That's only a, a, a taste of it. Um, but she's glided over in the limits of time. But what um, I think that she will take from us is the speed with which she's gone through life and touched so many people um, with her um, abilities. I said I wasn't going to waste your time, and I don't mean to be wasting your time by giving this um, uh, eulogy to, uh, to Dr. Robinson. But I, without further ado, I'll, I'll ask um, the representatives from DLAN, the Global Legal Action Network, I'll leave it to them to decide who goes first, Dr. Garrod O'Quinn or uh, Jerry Liston. Very good. Thank you uh, very much, and it's an honor to be here and to share the stage with Dr. Robinson. And I'd first off like to advocate that that is a hard act to follow. Um, I am director of the Global Legal Action Network. Um, we've recently partnered with the Irish Centre for Human Rights, and we've established a, a placement scheme, and I see some of the students who are now working with our organization. Um, and I'd like to talk today about the, the role of uh, legal advocacy and advocacy in general on transnational and international issues and the importance of it. Um, most notably, uh, how we contend with scale, with values, uh, there was a reference to populism earlier on, and also about the life of the law, and I'll touch on each of those very briefly. I won't, again, waste your time, but i try and bring it on to questions and answers as soon as we can. Um, first off, our organization, our mandate is the taking of legal actions across borders that challenge the behavior of powerful actors involved with human rights abuses. So this means we try and figure out clever ways to use the law here to have an effect overseas where human rights issues are more prevalent or severe, where access to justice is restricted. And in a globalized world, we are connected in all strange and beautiful ways. And we're trying to use the law in strange and beautiful ways to try and improve how we are connected to uh, the world beyond our borders. So the themes we touch on um, include such pressing issues as migration, such pressing issues as climate change. Indeed, we were inspired by the articulation um, of Dr. Robinson um, when we first started this off of climate change as a human rights issue and something that lawyers should be tackling actively and litigating on. Um, we're also interested in the issues of forced labor and slave slavery. 
Um, and, and we're bringing sort of interesting cases. Um, we, we recently brought a case against Italy for its role in coordinating the Libyan Coast Guard to intercept migrants who were then subsequently sold on into slavery or abused and then subsequently deported. And we brought, uh, using a specific incident, um, a case to the European Court of Human Rights against Italy on this. And this was a challenge for a number of reasons. There are certain psychological hurdles that happen when scale enters the equation. The bigger the numbers, the less sympathy. As Stalin said, if you kill one person, it's murder. If you kill a million, it's a st statistic. It's what's known as the collapse of compassion. So in this work, when we're dealing with these large issues, I think advocates should be aware of this. And I think they should be aware of the, the, the research that psychology shows that there are ways around this. There are ways of properly dealing with scale so that we resonate with people and that we should consciously think about how we advocate, the language we use, how we frame things. Public health research has shown that how you frame things massively influences how we debate and policy those issues. Um, we can think of a, a very immediate example on this, um, the unfortunate situation of Mr. Khashoggi who uh, met his grim end uh, in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. That has attracted worldwide attention. The plight of him and his family who were recently paraded on Saudi TV has captured the imagination. Well, at the same time, the 10 million people on the brink of starvation in Yemen, as a result of the Saudi-led airstrikes, are not capturing the same public sympathy. Again, scale is a problem. And advocates, I think, need to use the law, but articulated through um, visceral examples, through ways that resonate with the target audience they're seeking to achieve that tipping point with, as has happened in, in the cases of sexual abuse inquiries, where that tipping point occurs and we see change. Because ultimately, we do want to use the law as an instrument for social change. Um, the other thing I would like to point out is that values. It seems uh, in the Trump era that we are more polarized than ever. And again, here I think framing is extremely important. Um, when we were litigating and conducting this um, case on the, the Italian migration and looking at the Libyan Coast Guard, it was incredible to see how the headlines were spun. Rather than us saying, look, you can, start, you can govern migration, but maybe don't abuse people. That got spun into vexatious migrants sue Italy. We almost lost control of the narrative. It was almost a case that we risked the doing more harm than good. So when dealing with these problems, I think we do have to be mindful of creating new risks as well. It isn't just plain sailing. We use a bit of psychology and we, we, we achieve change. Uh, we have to be mindful of the risks that we bring. But nonetheless, I think um, litigation does provide us with an opportunity, an opportunity to overcome many of these psychological hurdles and a chance to deploy narratives that are effective. I think that's because litigation has a very particular structure. It's structured in a way to trace harms, to trace injury, to specify what the harm is, to take it away from something that's uncertain and abstract, and then to trace that harm back to a defendant. It makes it for us real. And I think that's why litigation is sometimes so attractive for people who are seeking social change. 
The last thing I'd like to share from our experiences in dealing with these types of issues is that it's good to take these types of actions. But what I discovered early on is after you take it, sometimes you may even choose to take a secure legal win without achieving victory, where you uh, lose in a court case, but at least you've raised the profile, you've provided a platform. In those situations, the case may die. The, the, the social media uh, uh, graphs die off, the tweets stop, Facebook shares go down, the newspapers move on to the next thing. It's a very dynamic space. I think that in addition to bringing these types of legal actions and achieving publicity, we have a responsibility to move it forward with good advocacy. And that can only be achieved by linking with people who are outside of the law, in social movements who are effective, who know the issues, who are connected to communities, who can bring life to these actions beyond the mere headline or that spark of publicity. Um, and that's it. That's really my contribution, I think, from our, our work at the Global Legal Action Network, working on these, these issues. And my, my colleague, Jerry Liston, will say more about some of our work on uh, climate change litigation that will give you a greater insight into our thinking on these matters. But uh, thank you very much. Thanks very much for the opportunity to speak here. It's a, a real and slightly daunting honor. Um, but I thought I'd just share some thoughts with you on uh, the necessity of advocacy from the point of view of the work, that, some of the work that I've been involved in with the uh, Global Legal Action Network. As Garod mentioned, the advocacy work that we do is primarily legal in nature. Um, and I suppose in terms of the uh, necessity of that work, it's worth thinking about uh, how a case in the ordinary way starts, just an ordinary everyday, ordinary everyday case. So imagine someone who is injured through the wrongdoing of another person. Uh, that person is likely to appreciate at least the possibility that they might have some sort of legal claim uh, against the person who's caused them the wrongdoing. And in, in, in Ireland, the person, the injured person, will then go to a solicitor. And, and that initial element of of knowledge that the person who's been uh, harmed has. It's what actually sets in motion uh, the, the legal case. But imagine you're a farmer in Uzbekistan, a cotton farmer in Uzbekistan. And in Uzbekistan, the, the government operates a very brutal forced labor regime where it forces farmers to grow cotton every year and to meet extremely onerous quotas, which it enforces through uh, extremely punitive measures, including sometimes physically beating uh, the farmers. The European Union uh, is, not only does it permit the importation of goods that are produced, the cotton goods that are produced, uh, or at least the cotton itself that's produced by these farmers into the EU, it's actually actively encouraging the trade in this cotton. Uh, and as a farmer in Uzbekistan, you're highly unlikely to appreciate the possibility uh, that there, there might be some basis on which to challenge these measures that are going against what every expert on forced labor uh, will tell you uh, should be done in order to eliminate forced labor. And that's actually a challenge that we're hoping to commence uh, very soon. And I think as a case, uh, it illustrates the necessity of lawyer-led uh, uh, legal advocacy on behalf of those uh, who are subjected to human rights abuses, particularly uh, where uh, there's a transnational dimension involved in sustaining those abuses. 
Another question then is where does political advocacy in the political arena, uh, how does that relate to the advocacy in the legal arena uh, that we're involved in? And Garod mentioned the uh, climate change uh, litigation that we're involved in. It's a somewhat ambitious case uh, where we're hoping to uh, bring up to 47 countries to the European Court of Human Rights, hopefully commencing it uh, in the early part or mid part of, of next year, essentially relating to the, to the failure by these countries to properly uh, address uh, uh, climate change. And we were discussing uh, prior to the talk this evening the Mothers of Invention podcast that Dr. Robinson and Maeve Higgins, I think is the comedian's name, who, who are producing it. Uh, and the first episode of that podcast, which I'd highly recommend uh, people to listen to and was of particular interest to me, is on climate change litigation. And one of the uh, people that was interviewed on that uh, particular podcast was someone called Tessa Khan. She's a lawyer with the Urgenda Foundation, and people might be familiar with Urgenda. They uh, achieved a major victory in the Dutch district court in 2015, uh, securing an order from the court uh, against the Dutch government that it must do significant, take significantly uh, greater uh, action in, in cutting its greenhouse gas emissions. And what Tessa said, or one of the things that Tessa said uh, on that podcast was that cause-driven litigation is only as strong as the social movement behind it. Uh, and I think uh, that's something uh, that we've become very conscious of uh, in, in our work uh, with the uh, on these particular issues, and, and, and not least in relation to climate change. And I think it reflects the fact that while courts, of course, respond to the uh, legal arguments that are put before them, there's also evidence to indicate that, at least in relation to uh, high-profile issues and causes like climate change, that they're also uh, responsive to the work of activists that take place outside the courtroom. And I, I hope I'm allowed to say that in front of the members of the judiciary who are here this evening. Uh, and then, of course, uh, there's a, a, a converse to that in that uh, litigation can help to uh, fuel and support and, and galvanize support around the issues outside of the courtroom that, that are being addressed in the courtroom, because legal cases obviously help to uh, draw a huge amount of attention to a particular issue. And that's something that we're very conscious of doing effectively along the lines that Garod mentioned with the various cases that we're involved in. So that's just a very brief uh, reflection on, on the necessity of advocacy from the perspective of my work. Thanks. Uh, Garrod and, and Jerry, thank, thank you very much. Um, you're only getting a brief snapshot of what, of what they do. We're, um, uh, and I think it's again, feeding into what advocacy. There are so many strands to it. It's, it's hard to just grasp, but hopefully we'll excite some interest uh, in, in, in the subjects, but not the material subject, but how um, advocacy uh, can work. Um, uh, Jerry just mentioned about cause-driven litigation and with paying due respect to the courts. Um, I, I'm first to acknowledge that we are the weakest link uh, in, 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 in uh, the power of government. Um, and that's not taken away from it, the, what, what we do, but I would say that um, the power of persuasion uh, through politics, um, media, um, discourse in universities is so important. 
Again, I'm not going to waste your time with further ado. I'm going to ask um, Dr. Maeve O'Rourke, who again, who will be well known to you, uh, to speak to you for a few minutes. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me here this evening. Uh, when I was in law school, I thought that human rights law was mostly about litigation. I thought that's what lawyers do, that's how they bring about change, that's how Mary Robinson brought about change. So soon after leaving UCD and finishing my master's, I sat the New York bar exam, and I was called to the English bar, and I then practiced for a few years in family law, and also on a major environmental case against Shell, Nigeria. I've since realized though, as a result of the voluntary work that I've done for the last nine years while working full-time as a lawyer and then writing my PhD, that lawyers are badly needed for legal advocacy and legal solutions outside of court too. And that is what I'm going to focus on in the next few minutes. Um, I should mention before I describe some of the uh, work that I've done that um, I've always loved research and next year I will be joining NUIG as a lecturer. And I think there is a huge need for human rights advocacy by academics too. Academics who've had the chance and taken the time to research a problem and to consider and compare possible solutions to that problem. The world needs to know of the analysis that academics carry out and the solutions that they propose. And I do think that the people whose lives they're studying um, deserve that. So I believe that whether human rights advocacy is done in court or in politics or as an academic or as part of a social movement or in one's professional or personal life or as a combination of all of those, it's really important to work in a deeply collaborative way with the people who are affected by the human rights violations. And so going back to what I originally thought law human rights lawyering was all about, um, that is professional legal practice. What I want to focus on is that I actually think that the methods of legal professional practice have a lot to offer in terms of how we collaborate on human rights cases and issues outside of court. A practicing lawyer always makes their case on instructions from their client. That is the golden rule. A lawyer is essentially their client's mouthpiece, although of course they offer advice and information to their client before taking their client's final instructions. A lawyer forensically gathers the information relating to their client's case. They look for all of the available evidence and they put it together carefully. It usually includes witness evidence, any documentary evidence and all other forms of direct and circumstantial evidence that can be found. The lawyer then presents the full detail of their client's case before a decision maker and the lawyer makes carefully considered factual and legal arguments having thought about and tested the other side's likely responses. So I'd like to share some examples of my own legal human rights advocacy as a way of demonstrating this, what I believe to be an effective way of lawyers engaging collaboratively with people from other disciplines but doing what they can do best. Um, to advance human rights causes. The first example is the Justice for Magdalene's campaign, which helped to bring about the Taoiseach's state apology to survivors of the Magdalene laundries in February 2013. Um, I was also lucky enough to go to Harvard Law School straight after my undergraduate law degree in UCD. And um, 
this work that I did with Justice for Magdalene's all came about uh, as part of my master's research. Um, I had the exact same uh, impression when I went to Harvard. I saw a different world to the one I was used to in Ireland, albeit I think four decades later. Um, young people really were all about taking responsibility. And in class, it wasn't like people were just going to be applying the law, they were going to be making the law. So I had gone to Harvard in 2009, just as the Ryan Report, which looked at endemic abuse in state-funded church-run schools in Ireland had come out. Um, and I remember just being absolutely shocked and shook, thinking, I don't need to go anywhere to work on human rights. And immediately upon getting to Harvard, I started to study sex equality with Professor Catherine McKinnon, um, one of the world's most famous radical feminist lawyers. And a paper that I wrote for her was a gender analysis of how Ireland had dealt with its um, legacy of church-related abuse. And I ended up in office hours with her, and I ended up talking about the Magdalene Laundries. And she just looked at me and said, what are you going to do about it? So... For my LLM thesis, I started to look into state responsibility for what had happened in the Magdalene Laundries. I met a professor, Jim Smith, who was in Boston College. She was working with a very small group of advocates called Justice for Magdalene's, a completely voluntary group. It was Jim Smith, an academic, Dr. Catherine O'Donnell, an UCD, another academic, Claire McGettrick, who's adoption rights, an adoption rights activist, and Mary Steed, whose mum was in a Magdalene Laundry for many decades. Jim Smith, by the time I met him, had gathered a large amount of evidence from state archives demonstrating official involvement with the Magdalene Laundries in the sense that the courts had sent some girls there um, as an alternative to prison, and also that laundry had been washed, state laundry, a lot of state laundry had been washed by the Magdalene Laundries. And Justice for Magdalene's, by the time I met them, had presented draft language for an apology and a redress scheme to the government because they'd kind of taken the opportunity when there was all the attention on the Ryan Report in 2009 to suggest that it's something similar should be done for women who'd spend time locked up in Magdalene Laundries. But the answer they kept getting was no. The Magdalene Laundries are different to the industrial schools. They were private institutions and the state did not regulate or inspect them. The officials were refusing to countenance uh, apologising or providing redress. So when I met Professor Jim Smith as a master's student, I realized that what, need, what was needed at that point was a legal analysis of what had actually happened to the girls and women in the Magdalene Laundries so that legal arguments could be made about why the very fact that those institutions were not regulated or inspected was a violation of state obligations, not an excuse. I spent months writing my LLM thesis, I recovered RTE radio tapes, and I found previous TV documentaries, and I transcribed what the women had said in those documentaries about what had happened to them. And I argued, ultimately, that the abuse had amounted to forced labor, or servitude, or even slavery, which Ireland had been obliged to prevent and suppress, and certainly not to be involved in on a commercial basis since the 1930s. These legal arguments then contributed to Justice for Magdalene's application to the Irish Human Rights Commission in 2010 for um, an assessment of the state's responsibility for human rights violations. And the Irish Human Rights Commission did uh, quite quickly recommend um, a statutory investigation and compensation where appropriate. 
Then I was in London on a fellowship from Harvard, and I started in my spare time to take witness statements from women who had spent time in Magdalen laundries. These women were part of state-funded groups for survivors of industrial schools, and as we now know, there was lots of crossover, lots of direct transfers from industrial schools to Magdalen laundries. So I took witness statements, and I brought these statements and further legal arguments before the UN Committee Against Torture in 2011. The UN Committee Against Torture echoed the Irish Human Rights Commission's call for an immediate independent investigation and for accountability and redress. And those actions then prompted the setting up of the McAleese Committee that inquired into state interaction with the Magdalene Laundries. But the legal work outside of court was not over. We were worried because the government didn't give the McAleese Committee the remit or the powers or the mandate to investigate abuse in the Magdalene Laundries, simply the question of state involvement. And also, apart from Senator McAleese being independent, all of the committee members were senior civil servants from the very government departments that ended up being found to be completely involved with the Magdalene Laundries. So in order to hold the process accountable, I worked with a barrister in London and the members of Justice for Magdalene's to gather about 800 pages of witness testimony and over 3,000 pages of archival evidence, which we summarized in a 150-page legal submission, essentially a skeleton argument, which essentially said, we have enough here for a high court case, or many, if the right thing isn't done by the government. We were able to share this submission in redacted form with all TDs and senators, um, in 2013, when the report of the Interdepartmental Committee was re released. And I do believe that this contributed hugely to bringing about the state apology and the redress scheme after that. The testimonies that we gathered and the submissions and the archival evidence are also an important contribution to the national historical record. And I think that they'll be really important in what I see to be a movement towards national commemoration and education, increasingly. So having learned from that whole process, I set up a similar initiative in 2015 after the government established the Statutory Commission of Investigation into Mother and Baby Homes following on from the Tomb revelations. The CLAN project is a collaboration between Adoption Rights Alliance and Justice for Magdalene's Research, both voluntary groups again, and the global law firm Hogan Lovells. Over the past two years, 69 lawyers in the London and New York offices of Hogan Lovells have given free assistance to anyone who wants to make a witness statement to give to the Commission of Investigation into Mother and Baby Homes. And shortly, we'll ask witnesses if they would like to deposit their witness statements anonymized into a public archive for future generations. We published the first major report of the CLAM project last Monday, which is a 150-page compilation of factual evidence and legal argument and based on 77 witness statements, and there are more in the process. It contains human rights legal analysis and recommendations for how to achieve human rights-based reparation for the past treatment of unmarried mothers and their children. And last Monday, we focused on the ongoing human rights violations that are occurring because of denial of access to personal files and also the secrecy ongoing of administrative records, which are still held by a variety of private church and state entities. And the fact that the Clan Project witnesses, even at the launch last Monday, own a copy of their witness statement, own their testimony, and were able to speak from it, demonstrated starkly the difference between that approach and the fact that anyone who's given 
um, oral evidence in private before the Commission of Investigation isn't actually entitled, because of the legislation underpinning that investigation, to a transcript of what they said. Because the legislation intends for the Commission to create an entirely sealed archive. So on that note, um, I just want to sincerely thank the organisers for inviting me to be here. I've always been inspired by Dr Robinson's work, so it's great to be able to say that in person and thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Dr O'Rourke, um, for that. I, I won't um, elaborate any further other than to say that it's amazing about all these speakers. They don't talk about their own personal sacrifice, that um, they're, so, they're so committed. But the point that she was making about the role of lecturers and academics, I think, feeds into the next uh, speaker, uh, Professor Neve Riley, who would be known to many of you here. And again, I would refer you to the biography. Um, and I hand over to Professor uh, Riley. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, I'm really uh, delighted to be here, I think, as the, as the one non-lawyer on the, on the panel, which is great. And uh, just to say, I hope there's a lot of art students in the room. Um, they're the best, the best advocates. So, so uh, uh, yeah, I, I just a short a few comments, really. Um, I mean, the, the very difficult times that we're in at the moment ha has been alluded to. Uh, but really, in the last decade and a half, um, you know, as I, I speak really as a political scientist and thinking about the conditions uh, for advocacy uh, and the, um, really the, the threats that the human rights paradigm itself um, um, is facing. Uh, the war on terror of the last uh, decade and a half plus uh, has really um, eroded efforts to uh, deepen and extend what is always a very fragile consensus uh, internationally uh, around um, our shared uh, human rights values, the return of strongman politics, autocratic politics, where there's almost a bravado uh, about overtly uh, dismissing the relevance of human rights, uh, globalization that has, has, has brought a lot of positive things but brought social fragmentation, uh, the digital media uh, revolution which has fragmented our public spheres. Uh, all of these make it frustrate our efforts to organize collectively and, and, and act in concert on human rights issues, the rise of populist nationalisms and xenophobia, and also the um, compelling critiques from people on the left and uh, liberal intellectuals of um, those moments when human rights gets it wrong and when human rights is often invoked uh, um, while human rights abuses are being committed. And this also undermines uh, human rights. So it is, uh, these are very difficult times, uh, and we do need to those of us who are committed to human rights need to take extra effort to um, ensure that the, that, the, that the human rights framework and that the commitment to human rights is uh, reasserted and reaffirmed and bolstered. The one thing that I want to um, focus on is really in praise of long-haul advocacy. I think sometimes you know, we're sort of limited by our egos as human beings and we, we kind of hope that if we put in a couple of years here and a couple of years there, we're going to change the world. But you know, we will change the world, but we will change the world through our um, contribution uh, to the long haul and incrementally. Um, I thought it would be appropriate, I'm doing some work on the moment, at the moment on the uh, political and social thought of Tom Kettle. And for those of you who aren't familiar with Tom Kettle, Tom Kettle is a, is a great underrated essayist, writer, poet, 
uh, one of the last uh, of the young parliamentary um, nationalists, uh, a very reluctant barrister uh, who uh, died in World War I. But he, he had this um, to say about the advocacy journey, about the, 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 you know, the moment of, of kind of recognition of a wrong and about changing it through the law. And he was speaking in 1905. Um, as a, giving an inaugural lecture to the Young, young Ireland uh, branch of the, uh, of the United Irish League. Uh, and and it, he says, You would do well to study the trials through which an idea passes before it becomes a law. It arises out of the misery and contains the salvation of a people. The state welcomes it with a policeman's baton. It recovers. The state puts it in jail, on a plank bed, and feeds it on gruel. It becomes articulate in Parliament, a statesman, from the moral altitude of £5,000 a year, denounces it as a devilish device of a hired demagogue. The idea, it grows old, almost obsolete, no longer adequate. A statesman steals it, embodies it in an act, and goes down in history as a daring reformer. It is, it is this idea that, that the, the, the process of change is fraught and tortuous in, in, in terms of, in terms of the, this interface between politics and the law. And achieving change takes time, tenacity, and endurance. And the deeper the injustice to be tackled, the longer it takes to begin to set things right. And it is multi-layered. It is a multi-layered project, as has been said. It, is, it, is, it has legal dimensions, political dimensions, uh, but also cultural, social, economic. And successful advocacy needs, as has been acknowledged, a multidisciplinary approach. It needs strategies across the board uh, to, to, to tackle it. And, and in terms of, of the, this cultural dimension of advocacy, the uh, post-colonial feminist uh, critic, Gertrude Spivak, often talks about how achieving change um, requires the uncoercive rearrangement of desires on a person-by-person -person level. It is a slow, painful process in common parlance, changing hearts and minds. And I think, you know, when Mary Robinson was um, out there advocating in the early 70s uh, for a liberalization of contraceptive law, uh, advocating for the, um, the decriminalization of homosexuality, advocating against the proposed Eighth Amendment to the Constitution. It would have been hard to imagine the transformation in hearts and minds, the rearrangement of desires in the hearts and minds of people on this country that has taken place to allow the changes that have taken place, but some 35 years later. So it's a long haul, and that advocacy begun then comes to fruition now, and then there are still new challenges to be, to be tackled. Um, my own work, I, you know, over the years, I, I became deeply involved in human rights advocacy in the early 90s, um, as um, I, I, you know, I had the privilege to work with um, a very wide international network. I was based in the United States, part of the diaspora, and I don't think Mary Robinson really ever appreciates the huge impact that she had on those of us who had emigrated and were living away and uh, were hugely uplifted and energized by her recognition of us. Because Ireland, you know, even in, you know, in, 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 in my you know, coming of age in the 80s, was a very bleak place. It wasn't a place. Uh, that um, you really wanted to stay in, you wanted to get away uh, to new uh, horizons, and uh, it, it is now a transformed place compared to that. But I began working with the Global Campaign for Women's Human Rights, uh, with a uh, Rutgers-based center for women's global leadership, uh, which again was, was this academic-situated advocacy organization. 
and there wasn't a lawyer among us, but we soon forged alliances uh, with uh, lawyers who were, most of whom were working in human rights um, organizations, big human rights organizations. And to give an indication of the transformation that occurred between then and now, the early 90s and now, in terms of women's human rights, the first task was to get Amnesty International on board, uh, who was very conservative and very reluctant uh, to acknowledge um, what it meant that women's rights are human rights, that it would overwhelm the human rights uh, agenda, uh, that women's rights are, are, are important, yes, but they're not, they're not human rights, and, uh, and so on. So it, it, and now today, Amnesty International is one of the leading organizations in um, uh, really pushing that agenda of women's rights or human rights. Uh, so the other thing that I just want to focus on, that I just want to underline, um, and I won't take much time, and it, is, it has been mentioned by a few people, and I'm glad it has, which is the role of the university, and I would say the role of the public university. In the last number of, in the last year or two, I think we've become more aware of the role of the media in keeping a spotlight on uh, human rights uh, abuses and in, 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 in holding power to account, particularly in this context of uh, autocratic and populist politics. And I think the university, the public university, has a very particular role to play. And I think in this, in this um, um, recognition of the multidisciplinary nature of advocacy and long-haul advocacy, uh, really ensuring that uh, um, the arts and humanities, you know, Gretry Spivak in particular, sees humanities education as absolutely pivotal in this reorganization uh, of, of, of desire in order to achieve the social change that we need. That we really need to make sure that in the current climate, and particularly with the, with the influence of you know, commercial and free market logic, which is affecting the university sector around the world, that that, that um, education for civic engagement and advocacy is not squeezed out. Uh, that, 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 that it is very much front and center and invested in by public universities um, around the world. So I would just finish with another quote from Tom Kettle, if, 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 if you don't mind, uh, in, in, from the same essay, The Philosophy of Politics, uh, when he asks, well, with what attitude should we approach our advocacy and our political engagement? And he says, cynicism, however excusable in literature, is in life the last treachery, the irredeemable defeat. We must be content or try to be content with little, but we must continue to be loyal to the instinct that makes us hope much. We must believe in all utopias. Thanks very much, uh, Professor Riley. Um, the long haul uh, advocacy uh, through education uh, certainly sticks with me. Um, and that brings me neatly to our last speaker, um, Professor um, Donica O'Connell. Um, who will speak to you. Uh, I've been a long admirer of what he's actually done here in NUIG. Um, without further ado, I'll pass over to him. Uh, it's a great honor to be here, and I'm very grateful for the, for the invitation to speak to this gathering. Um, when I was a student doing the LLB um, in the 1980s, I was from the class of 1968 as well, at Castlebar Maternity Hospital, um, 1968. <laughs> and they, um, I remember picking my subjects, my elective subjects for the LLB, and a friend of mine said, what, what did you pick? And I said, oh, you know, human rights one and two. 
and public international law. And he said, yeah, you love the bullshit law subjects. <laughs> and he's now a very successful barrister um, with, with an enormous farm. And I'm teaching people who want to be him. Um, but there is, though, there is, though, something about what we do. And I, I decided, you know, when I was asked to speak this, is that I'm going to talk about reflective advocacy. And then I decided, well, I better reflect about what I'm doing. So I, I thought about it this afternoon. Um, and one of the things that I thought about was we, we separate uh, academic education from, from professional legal formation uh, in this country. And people sometimes complain about that, say, no, you should, should be more integrated. There's advantages, there's disadvantages. But I actually think from you know, a long experience of working within the system and having done professional formation as well, that I think there's a great advantage in having a separate academic phase in your life. There's scope for critical analysis, uh, for theoretical exploration, and critically, I think there's scope for idealism. There is actually a moment in life when it's easier to be idealistic than it is later. And I think if we don't do something about that when we are students or when we're teaching students, that is a huge uh, missed opportunity. I also think that when professional formation takes hold, if you go on to become a solicitor or a barrister, and I am somewhat focusing my comments on law students, um, students can be sometimes pressured to choose between their high-mindedness or between what is, you know, or what is considered useful or valuable. And if the foundations aren't good from the academic period, that choice might be a bad choice. I still think it's possible to have, to have both. So if you, if you integrate fully professional formation and legal education, I think you would compromise the advantages of academic education. But I do think we need to punctuate the academic curriculum with exposure to reality checks and real life experience. And we do, I think, in the academy now by our commitment to clinical legal education, to mooting, uh, to placements in organizations. Uh, we've normalized that in academic institutions, and I think that is very good. And subjects like human rights and subjects like international law are mainstream law subjects. They're no longer considered marginal or some kind of an indulgence. And it is, I think, critically important that we say to students when they are law students or doing law with another discipline that this is their period of freedom from professional formation, that there is something different about that context than the context in which you are being professionally formed. Uh, and it's good that people go on to become barristers and solicitors. That's perfectly fine. It's even better if they go in without law as their primary background. And we have had for years here, I'm myself a graduate of the BA with law. We've had that for a long time. When I did law here, I did it through arts. My other subject was sociology and politics. And we had people like Michael D. Higgins teaching us where there was certainly an emphasis on advocacy uh, and indignation and all that goes <laughs> with, with, with that. Um, so when we look then at advocacy, and again, I, I actually teach a course with it in the title, but you can't really teach advocacy, I don't think. So you can have the advocate who's the lawyer, the disinterested lawyer, and teaching students about disinterest is, I think, a really, really good thing. It's a very, very key skill. But also you have self-advocacy. And we have, within the school, through the Center for Disability Law and Policy, 
a very interesting project, which tonight is in fact having a big launch in Dublin, the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission, the Voices Project, which is a project of, of self-advocates on, on legal capacity. So what use then are we as lawyers? And I think this is a very, very important question. We can't just presume that we lead all these things or that we're valuable in some sense. We have to actually ask what use we have. And I think we're very useful if the change that is sought comes in the shape of law reform. But not all change that is sought comes in the shape of law reform. It can be legislative or it can actually be a litigation outcome, which is, I think, something quite different. And it doesn't follow that lawyers are best placed to lead organizations that are focused on this kind of change, if it's social change or if it's political change. In fact, very often that's a bad idea. It's much better to have the lawyers doing what they're actually uh, good at. And the change that may be sought may not be all about law. Law may be an element of it, but there may be other components to the change. And what then limits our usefulness as lawyers and what can law schools do to address those limits? Because I think there are real limits in how lawyers are formed when it comes to advancing social change or ambitious change or radical ideas. And I think one of the things that we have to work on very, very hard in the law schools is that we need to inculcate, I think, skepticism in law students. There's no point in teaching somebody about the separation of powers as if that was some kind of self-evident truth or as if it was some self-sustaining mythology. You have to actually interrogate fundamentals like the separation of powers so that when students, law students understand that concept, they do so not from a position of belief, but from a skeptical or a critical position. And I think if we, in our teaching, encourage people to buy too much into the mythology of systems, if we say that the law is neutral, uh, or devoid of ideology, or that judges simply apply the law almost in a robotic manner with no subjective impulse, I think we are doing a disservice uh, to law students. I think this is particularly important in areas like constitutional law. And if it didn't matter, well, then why would they be advocates? What would the advocate be doing if they're simply appealing to a judge who will mechanistically and without subjective input dispense an outcome without some persuasion or something other than that? And that is, of course, the whole point of legal advocacy. So as legal educators, I think our duty is to appeal to the imagination of law students, encouraging creativity, but maybe not adventurousness, explaining risk, but not to the extent of inculcating excessive caution. And when Tony referenced all of the cases that Mary Robinson was involved in, and I found this myself for years and years of teaching, when you go through, if you teach a subject like constitutional law, it's almost like a litany of the risks taken by Mary Robinson as a lawyer. <laughs> I think calculated risks some of the time. Um, and they, it, but, but to mention that in the teaching of those uh, cases, particularly if you teach also stuff, you know, things to do with the ECHR, again, critically important. If that hadn't happened, the role model wouldn't exist for future public interest uh, lawyers. And then, when we turn, say, to the international system, 
I think one of the ways, we get, we get bogged down in Ireland about you know, this contest between domestic law and international law. It's a completely pointless debate. I think if we look at the international system now, I, you, you can borrow the, the tagline of T.G. Cahar, it's Suelela. It's another, another perspective that you bring to the teaching uh, of law, if you see it merely as an educational tool. And I think, I think we've always done this, to be fair, in Galway. I think you should have in legal education a conscious cosmopolitanism. It shouldn't just ever be about one system. That's actually a very dangerous thing. There should be a conscious cosmopolitanism in the way in which we teach either international law or comparative law. And we should avoid particularism. And this is perfectly consistent with legal education in a common law world. We don't use the phrase the common law world for no reason. It's about more than one country's legal system. It's about, in fact, many countries' legal systems, but not all the legal systems in the world. Just by way of footnote in relation to that before I finish, the um, other dimension, I suppose, of the international context would be EU law. And post-Brexit, this creates a really interesting challenge for a country like Ireland, because we will be the only remaining common law jurisdiction uh, in the EU. But it may also signal the end of the common law for a jurisdiction like Ireland. It seems a little bit alarmist to suggest that, but it may be you know, foreseeable that within 30 to 40 years, the common law may not be what it has been in a jurisdiction like Ireland. We may, much, we may be much more a country of European law more directly applied. And that could be a good thing or a bad thing. There's a technocratic, arid, inaccessible side to that that isn't particularly attractive, even for nerds like me who teach law. But there's also an exciting side to that, the EU Charter on Fundamental Rights, which could prove, I think, to be a very interesting thing, but it is a topic for another day. So to conclude with just some thoughts from my own experience and to, to give some, some reflection, as I say, I did law with arts. I didn't do law as a kind of a, a pure undergrad degree. And then I did the bar. And one of the things when we did the bar was we were told to forget everything that we did in university, which is an odd thing to say <laughs> to people who are entering into a career where negligence uh, might be a problem. Because some of what they taught us in university was actually right. I, f I, I found out. Um, and then I became, very accidentally, I became a, an academic. And one of my colleagues, when I originally started as an academic, he said, you have to see, you have to use the revolving door, which was a, a different uh, metaphor at that time. But um, it, it applies in a non-criminal context as well. And I left at, in 1999 to become the first full-time director of the Irish Council for Civil Liberties, which was an organization founded by Mary Robinson, Cader Asmal, and Donald Barrington in the 1970s. They didn't actually have a full-time director, because this was a mark of how you know, voluntary a lot of the work was until the late 1990s, thanks to the funding of, of Chuck Feeney. And I went to work in that organization. It was essentially a campaigning organization. I was 31 when I got the job. I really hadn't a clue of, you know, obviously all the other candidates were dreadful. And I hadn't, <laughs> I hadn't a clue um, what, I was, what I was actually doing. But I learned, you know, I learned on the job. And then came back to the university here uh, in 2002, got involved in a number of EU networks and joined the boards of organizations, other NGOs, which was a really fascinating perspective. So I was on the board of Amnesty, the board of FLAC, and later on the board of Interrights, a London-based uh, litigation 
organization, which was a really, really uh, fascinating experience, but it no longer exists. And then I got involved with state bodies, uh, the Legal Aid Board, the Law Reform Commission, and most recently, the Commission on the Future of Policing in Ireland. So it's been an interesting journey in the sense that the certainties that I knew when I worked in the NGO sector, I've had some chance to promote on, you know, in state bodies, not particularly, I mean, they're, you know, state bodies that aren't very core state bodies. Uh, it's a little bit more complicated from that side than it would be from the NGO side, but that experience is absolutely invaluable. And to see, I mean, to give you an example, when we were finishing the report of the Commission on the Future of Policing, Nolene Blackwell and I, who was also a member of the Commission, weren't particularly happy with all of the human rights elements in it. So we undertook to human rights proof it. And Nolene said she, used to, she was experienced at this from her time in Amnesty, when Amnesty became interested in women's rights, which Neva's mentioned, because she used to go through the documents and write, and women, at the end of every sentence. <laughs> and so we, we, we spent a night writing, and human rights, and our serious approach to human rights, all these kind of words. We got, we got excited later in the night and started using adjectives. And uh, so, but the report, you know, when we did that exercise in human rights proofing, we had in our other hand an excellent report by the Irish Council for Civil Liberties um, that had commissioned the report independently from a woman in Northern Ireland, Alison Kilpatrick, who did a really good authoritative piece of work. So there was, there was actual real impact in action in the doing of that. And you could see, you could see this circle closing uh, somewhat. So what I've learned from reflecting on all of this is that there are multiple pathways to impact not just one. And it's a really important lesson, I think, for lawyers to understand because the lawyer can focus in on the one impact, which might be a litigation impact. Law is essentially a literacy that if you're working in the human rights world, it's a particularly valuable language, but it's not the only one. The richness is largely actually in the collaborations with others who are not lawyers. And throughout all of my involvements, I've always been a teacher. And I think one of the great things about teaching is that it affords you something which should be central to all practice, which is to be reflective, to think about what you're doing while you're doing it, not too long after you've done it, but you have to do that too. And if you do that in everything, I think whether it's advocacy or whether it's lawyering generally or just teaching, I think it will be better. And that's the kind of simple message that I have from my own reflection. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Professor O'Connell. I don't think anybody in this audience will say that he hasn't a clue. Um, he's uh, very, um, there's great foresight in what education can do and uh, for this um, upcoming generation. We now have a few minutes for questions and, um, uh, and contributions from the audience. I'm not sure whether there's a roving mic that you want to. Are there any questions to Please, this, this uh, man in the audience there, on the right-hand side. Well, I'm going to speak loudly. Please, um, yeah. Um, given the damage reports recently by the UN on Myanmar um, and, <coughs> and the ethnic cleansing and genocide, do you think it's time now that Galway take away the freedom of 
its city from Anzansuki. I'm not sure whether that's a question for... <laughs> we'll take a few questions, that's a good idea. We're taking any other questions? We take three at a time. Hello. Thank you very much. This is a question for the GLAN um, speakers. I'm wondering um, if GLAN are taking on the appalling abuse of human rights of migrants uh, locked up in terrible conditions within Libya, as well as in Turkey and Greece. Is there a third question? Uh, can you hear me? Uh, do you think there should be more structures of accountability in Ireland? And uh, do you believe in the concept of enforced accountability? I'm sorry, could you repeat that last part of the question? Do you think there should be more structures of accountability in Ireland? And do you believe in the concept of enforced accountability, especially for state bodies and for people working for the state? Um. Right. A lot of these questions are um, more not not necessarily directed towards advocacy. Um, would somebody like to feel the first question um, about my uh, about the city council? And it's not really a, a, an issue that arises in the context of advocacy, if you don't mind me saying so. Um, it, it's a it's a it's a view that you have, um, and what can the we are here to talk about um, the power of advocacy. I hear what you're, the point that you're making. Unless somebody wants to address it. You are um, advocating, yeah. I hear the point. Um, I'm not too sure whether somebody wants to say that, that that's a, a, a topic that we need to deal with now. Does anybody want to take that uh, issue? I, I, I can, yeah, I can I, understand I the say, reluctance. I, mean, I would say that the, raising the debate and raising that question has a powerful effect. Yes. Gelgoff knew it when he was doing it. And it, it really, the outcome is irrelevant. It's the fact that this raises the question about what is happening there and why is she not acting. And it, raises, it puts pressure on the political establishment to also act and to do their own advocating in their foreign policy. So I see it as a, a, the mere destabilization of, a, of her status as a form of advocacy that's quite powerful. It's transnational. Thanks very much, Garrett. Now, the second question, um Maybe Jerry will, uh, will deal with this about land. Why is it not dealing with um, Libya and, uh, and Turkey? Garelle might answer that one as well. Yeah, yeah. We're, we, are, we are working on, on the, the issue of conditions of detention for um, a subset, a particular category of migrant in Libya. Unfortunately, the, the action is linked to our existing case, and I can't say too much about it, but we have managed to um, smuggle out consent forms from these people from Libya to, to act on them. Um, it's extremely difficult. It comes with enormous responsibility, so I can't actually uh, tell you more than that, but I'd be happy to, after, after this is over, to give you a bit more information on our broader, broader plans on that issue. Yeah. But I mean, uh, the Mediterranean Basin, I think, is somewhere where we should be exercising um, acute scrutiny, especially with when it comes to the criminalization of human rights defenders around the Mediterranean Basin, some of whom have been Irish educated, who have been locked up in Lesbos, accused of trafficking merely for helping migrants. Um, a really pressing issue. Thanks very much, Gordon. Now, the last uh, question was, uh, if, I, if I understand it correctly, was 
um, do any of the panel want to talk about the structures of accountability um, in, in Ireland itself? Again, it seems to be a cause. Um, is that a particular cause that's um, very good? Thank yeah, you I'll happily say a few things about that. Um, I think that we desperately need a proper system of legal aid to use the European Convention on Human Rights Act here. Um, because that is one very important way of holding state bodies to account for their obligations to um, act compatibly with all of the European Convention on Human Rights jurisprudence that we have now. And too often we just see um, things happen to people and they just cannot manage to take the case that they should be able to take. And having practiced in England and seen the huge amount of jurisprudence under the Human Rights Act there, the difference is incredible. Um, I have a personal interest in the National Archives and the need to extend the remit of the National Archives to all of the non-state, private enterprise that provide public services. I think that dealing with the past abuse that I'm dealing with, I can see that the secrecy of information relating to services that the state was paying for uh, is ongoing. I'm desperately trying to figure out a way to ensure that we have a national repository of all of the past, administrative records, personal records, and witness testimony. But if imagine the guarantee of non-repetition we could have if we actually could deal with the past at the same time as the future and actually amend the National Archives Act so that it brought within its remit all public provision records, i.e every form of public provision that the state pays for, whether or not it's provided by a private actor, that would take care of what we need to know about the past and it would ensure accountability in the future. And lastly, I would say that I think we have a problem with private inquiries. Um, in Ireland, there is uh, far too much <coughs> privacy in the truth, supposed truth-telling uh, that we should be seeing where there's malfeasance in public office. Yeah, just to supplement, I mean, I agree with, with what Maeve said, but there, there is, I was at a conference last Friday, which was really interesting. There is a public sector duty uh, of compliance with human rights and equality principles under the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission Act, but it doesn't create any private law cause of action. It can just simply be used in judicial review, and it's kind of intended as a kind of a soft law thing. But there is also under the ECHR Act, which Maeve has mentioned, a performative obligation for uh, organs of the state to behave in a manner that is convention compatible. And if they don't, you can get damages for that. And we were discussing this at the conference on Friday. And one of the ideas that emerged was that, well, if you can't take a call, uh, you know, an action for breach of <coughs> statutory duty for failure to comply with the statutory obligation, surely you can use the evidence of the failure to comply with the statutory ob obligation <coughs> to sustain an action for breach of statutory duty under the ECHR Act. It's a bit, sorry, it's a bit technocratic for this time of the evening, but like there, there are things, you know, there are actually lots of ways to make state bodies more accountable. But the one thing that absolutely doesn't work is setting up accountability mechanisms that are intended not to create accountability. And that's a huge problem. It's something that came across in the context of, of policing. And the multiplicity of oversight bodies, GSOC, inspectorate, authority, but they don't, as a, as, a, as a combination work. And we've made proposals for that to change so that they are in fact effective and that there is a very clear accountability line and it's now over to the government to implement that. 
but these aren't accidents. You know, they happen, they happen as reactions to things. So there's a certain imperfection, but sometimes it's designed. Sometimes they're actually intended not to create a proper oversight mechanism. And that is, is, is deeply problematic because it takes about 10 years to figure out that it hasn't worked before you go on to make it work possibly the second time. And I think we have to, we really have to cop on about that. And I think politicians have to become much more <coughs> exacting about legislation to establish these kind of entities. They can't just usher them through and say, well, this is going to work, this is going to be a great thing, it's better than what we had before. You actually have to examine that very critically and, and not do that. So that's, I think, one of the things. There is a, there is a real responsibility there. Parliamentary accountability doesn't really work. You know, hauling people before parliamentary committees has a certain kind of an impact, but it doesn't really embed change. Whereas those kind of bodies that are established to ensure that do work if they're established properly. Can I just um, refocus a little bit, um, uh, and thank you very much for those uh, comments. On, on the question of advocacy, I'm just going to ask one question to um, Dr. Robinson in particular. Uh, just as a, as a lawyer, having been an advocate, how does she and how has she coped during her career with recognizing the anger she touched upon it and that she might feel and then be the true advocate and um, pick the fight that you want to um, you want to fight that's one question and I take two other questions because we're just going over time and I did promise you that we and there's uh, two gentlemen here down here and, and they're sorry we'll, 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 we'll <clears throat> if I could address just an issue that was brought up there by Dr. Maeve O'Rourke. You mentioned about the kind of the secrecy provision under the Commission Investigation Act. There's an exact same provision under the Human Rights and Equality Act where they can perform investigations. In my view, it's clearly both unconstitutional and a violation of Article 10. So you have a Human Rights Act that violates human rights law. I'm just wondering if there's anyone who's willing to challenge that because there's clear case law from the ECHR court that says you can't put prior restraint on speech. And people who have a right to, who have access to information that they bring to an investigative body should be entitled to publish it elsewhere. Well, it's understandable they may not have the cloak of privilege that would attach. They should be allowed to still publish it under their own auspices. So your, your question really is... Um, well, is there... Want, is there what? <laughs> surely, there, is it not evident that there's a very low level... It's very difficult to advocate in Ireland because it's, it's, you know, the persons are going to be affected by that. You're not going to be financially motivated to take on the legal system. So you need to have a kind of a public interest advocacy system that can mitigate those type of issues. So should we in have the a public, public interest, interest advocacy system? Thanks. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm just going to take two more questions down here. Sorry, just down here. Down, anyway, um, okay. Um, my question is regard to, I guess, people keeping people engaged in advocacy. Like there was such a huge mass mobilization around the repeal referendum this year. Um, and I suppose it's, I found personally that if it, an issue affects someone, they'll be a lot more likely to be engaged. So I guess it's the how to keep people engaged in issues that are international or not necessarily affecting their lives and how to keep advocacy going in that respect. Very good, thank you. Last question then. 
my question is to uh, Dr. Uh, Mary. Uh, the, I'm a little bit concerned about the next generation. I mean, you've done so much for your, your generation and speaking up to now. Are there plans on your part to provide mentorship support to the next generation, upcoming generation, telling them about your pitfalls, some challenges you encounter, and now you're able to navigate those challenges to get to where you are today. Thank you. I think the question is, that <clears throat> are there signals that she can give, and are there steps that she would advise? Is that correct for the next generation? Thank you. So the first um, question, whichever way, um, Dr. Robinson, okay. you wish to deal with them. Um. Well, I think you've given me an opening to plug my book. The reason I say this is the book begins with me coping with a heavy moment of anger in Marrakesh um, at a climate conference in 2016, um, in November 2016. Do you remember what happened in November 2016, on the 8th of November, 9th of November? And I was so angry that we would be having a climate conference and that in the United States you had an election of a president who was going to uh, had announced during the campaign that he didn't believe in climate change, that it was a Chinese hoax or something, and that he was going to um, pull the United States out. He said it um, several times. And so I arrived in Marrakesh and, you know, had a troubled night, and I described this in, at the opening of the book, and then I said, I'm going to have to make a statement tomorrow. And, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of felt, I, I'm a former president, I was actually elected um, what number of years was it? 26 years, I think it was, on the same day as President Trump. Um, let's see what. Um, yeah. Uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> it was the same day, whatever number of years it was, and um, uh, I was dissuaded by somebody who has given me a lot of good advice in my time. One Bride Rosney, my special advisor when I was president, still a very, a very dear friend, and she said, "No, Mary, don't just make a statement like that." get a reporter to ask you the right question. <laughs> very, very good advice. And I got the reporter to um, ask me the right question. And maybe I could just answer um, the two other questions that I thought um, I would have a, uh, something to offer on them. The question asked about keeping people engaged in advocacy. Um, that is why I, I wrote this book, so that people would become engaged in the existential threat facing us. And they do it because they'd have more empathy and more sense of solidarity with people already suffering from climate change. So um, in this book, it's, it's a book of stories, but they're real life stories, um, 11 of them, and nine of them involve women. Um, but two men are also interesting. And, <laughs> and the point is that um, they're stories of hope, resilience, and the fight for sustainable development. And I honestly think we need to hear these stories. We need to know what people are doing when their whole lives are being devastated and they get active. And then we need to realize we all need to take this personally now. That's the point. We all need to take it personally and decide we're going to make a difference. And 
Um, I, I think on the on the sort of uh, idea of the, the mentorship, I mean, I'm trying to uh, to get across the, the approach that um, uh, if you start taking it personally, as I am doing, and you know, trying to create good habits, I've become a pescatarian. Uh, what what's the what's the vegetation? You eat fish. Pes no, not pescatarian. Is it? Presbyterian. Anyway, <laughs> I don't eat meat anymore. I only eat fish. <laughs> and, um, uh, but the point is, I'm trying to show that we've got to take steps at all levels, including in our own lives, in our own homes, in our schools, in, in everything. And then if we do that, this is the point. If you start doing that because you're taking seriously what's happening, then you use your voice and your vote. And then you hold your government accountable. And it's governments that we need to take the measures that will ensure that we have a safe world for our children and grandchildren. So um, I'm not sure after what I said about, um, I mean, I wrote this personally. It's not really the work of my foundation. So I can think I can say that this is my advocacy for the future. Thank you very much. <laughs>
Um, we really, I suppose, um, try to support our students to develop their ability to demonstrate intellectual autonomy, critical thinking, independence in their thinking, and openness to new ideas and concepts and the skills to manage and develop their own learning. And that's a really important graduate attribute that we try to instill in all of our law students through our law programs. Another attribute that is really the core of what we do here at NUI Galway is to ensure that our students have clearly um, are able to really demonstrate quite clearly their commitment to human rights and to justice. And that's very much embedded within the law programs that we offer here at NUI Galway. And these are, the, these are the attributes that we have embedded within our new law BCL and human rights degree, which will have our first intake of students next year. Um, we also have a human rights crime and equality stream um, as an option available to our students in our general law degree or BCL programme. So really, we're very much committed to human rights and to supporting students to develop skills around human rights. Okay, so um, the one other thing I wanted to point up is that this is a very exciting year for us. We've had Dr. Mary Robinson here this evening who gave a wonderful talk to us and really a great attendance here and engagement with this important topic of advocacy. But another very exciting thing is going to happen in the spring. We have the Supreme Court sitting here on campus um, for two days. So they'll be here from the 4th to the 6th of March. So it's the first time the Supreme Court will have sat in the west of Ireland. It's the first time they'll have sat in the university. They'll be sitting in the Aula Maxima in the Quadrangle. And we're currently in the process of developing a programme of events around that. So we'll be announcing that in the coming months. And we really hope to see you attend those events for our students, staff, and for people in the legal professions in the west of Ireland. Um, so just some final thanks, I'd like to thank my colleagues Stella Carthy, Sandra Glidden and Professor Sean Mullally for all the work they've done uh, in organising this event and our colleagues in the administrative offices in the School of Law and the Irish Centre for Human Rights. Um, I'd also like to take this opportunity to welcome Maeve O'Rourke, um, who is going to be joining us in, in, in the spring, in April, um, April 1st, um, actually. Um, <laughs> so, but um, Maeve will be joining us, and we're really delighted to have her. And Maeve is going to be the lead on the Law and Human Rights Programme. She's going to be the Programme Director, and she'll be working quite closely with my colleague, John Danaher, who is the Programme Director for the BCL Programme. And John has done a lot of work around the academic planning for this new Law and Human Rights degree. I'll hand you over to John very briefly just to say a few words about that. Thank you. Yeah, so myself and Charles are part of the propaganda wing of advocacy this evening. Um, I think the theme that was set up earlier on about not wasting time is important, so I'm not going to waste your time. I just hope that all of you have been inspired to become advocates for the future and that anyone who knows anyone who wants to become a law student or is interested in studying law uh, can tell them about our new degrees. And if you have any interest in uh, taking those new degrees, you can contact me for further information. We have a variety of propaganda leaflets outside <laughs> with further information. And I'm also happy to take any questions personally afterwards at the front of uh, the room. So uh, I won't say any more than that. So thank you all for attending. That's it. Thank you. <laughs>